Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm Rai Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical illness, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share with you information that will help you take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining today to this episode of Respiratory Inspirations. I'm your guest host, Dr. Daniel Culver, the chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine in the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. With me today is Dr. Umar Hadapoglu. Dr. Hadapoglu is the director of respiratory therapy for the Cleveland Clinic Health System, as well as the section head of the COPD section in the Department of Pulmonary Medicine. Today we're going to talk about use of non-invasive ventilation strategies, NIV for short, for patients with COPD and high carbon dioxide levels or hypercapnia. Dr. Hadapoglu, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. So I know that much of the audience will be familiar with COPD, but the issue of carbon dioxide and hypercapnia and why that might be a problem might be something that not everybody has heard about. So what is it about COPD that leads to high carbon dioxide levels in so many people, and why should we care? Yeah, very important question. So the respiratory failure could be looked at as a simple imbalance between the capacity to remove carbon dioxide and get oxygen in you and uh, the load that you need to carry to do that. So our respiratory muscles uh, are basically the pump that helps us get rid of carbon dioxide. And what they need to do is move the chest wall and move the lungs outward so that air can be entrained into the lung for that to happen. In COPD, there are structural changes in the lung that make it difficult for a person to breathe. And what we call an elastic load occurs when air is trapped inside the chest. It's like you know, trying to breathe with balloons stuck inside your chest where it's really difficult to take a breath in. And it's also difficult to push the breath out because the airways are more collapsible, narrowed because of inflammation. And at one point, your capacity uh, to carry that load, the capacity of your respiratory muscles, uh, is overwhelmed. And the body at that point basically settles for a different level of carbon dioxide that is easier to manage. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. You're basically, you know, changing a, a set point, but then carbon dioxide builds in the body, and that could interfere with certain bodily functions, like enzymatic function, uh, immune system. It can cause edema in tissues, etc. Swelling, Swelling, fluid accumulation. Yes. Fluid accumulation, exactly. So if you've ever tried to hold your breath in a tunnel or going over a bridge, you know how sensitive and how uncomfortable it is for your brain to have high carbon dioxide. Absolutely. That, sensitive, that, that sensation when you're holding your breath isn't because of oxygen, it's because of carbon dioxide building up. And of course, because your brain thinks that it needs to breathe regularly. So why does the brain over time 
in patients with chronic respiratory diseases like COPD, why does it allow you to have a high carbon dioxide level without that panicky feeling you get when you're trying to hold your yeah. breath? Yeah, uh, it's really about conservation, right? Uh, if you have a load that you can't carry, you basically try to lessen the load. And every time you know, we take a breath, that's energy expenditure, right? We, uh, we do work. So by reducing the amount of work, you're conserving energy and you're basically creating a situation that you can handle. And the body helps out in different ways too by adjusting the acid-base balance we have in the blood. Kidneys are important in doing that. They retain bicarbonate, which is an alkaline, to offset the acidity that's brought on by carbon dioxide. So it's basically a compensation mechanism to avoid abject failure of respiratory function. So if you have COPD, if your doctor has told you you have COPD or emphysema or chronic bronchitis or one of those diseases we usually relate to smoking, uh, although of course not all of them are due to smoking, if you have that and you're feeling short of breath, what's the chance that the carbon dioxide level in your blood is high? Does everybody with COPD have a high carbon dioxide level? No, and that's a very important question. So if you look at the United States, we project there are about 28, 29 million patients with COPD, meaning if they had a lung function test, they would have obstruction. About 10% of those patients have severe COPD, which is their obstruction is at a level that really manifests itself with symptoms, you know, high burden of symptoms, hospitalizations, etc. So that's around 3 million Americans. So that's about 3 million Americans. Now, carbon dioxide, and again, you know, we don't have great epidemiological data on this, but we know from European studies which cater to severe COPD patients, another 10% of that is going to have elevated carbon dioxide levels. So we're talking about 250 to 300,000 patients in rough estimate. Have high carbon dioxide levels. Correct. And just to be clear, carbon dioxide is something that all of our bodies make all of the time. It's just that the people with very severe lung disease can't get rid of all of their carbon dioxide fast enough. That's absolutely correct. Okay. So why does carbon dioxide cause problems? This is a relatively controversial topic, but in acid environments, we know that body does not perform as well. It's basic metabolic functions that are carried out by enzymes uh, do not function as well. And the carbon dioxide leads to a buildup of acid, I think you're saying. That's right. Carbon dioxide is, is really acid. And uh, this, is, this is the basis of swelling in the tissues, you know, having a low immune system and uh, low metabolic function. We think that's the reason for the damage from carbon dioxide. So the, the program you've been leading over the past year has really been looking at a way to reduce carbon dioxide levels by an intervention. But what you're doing is really applying that intervention only for part of the day. So uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the intervention and also why applying it for only the nighttime, for example, would lead to people feeling better for 24 hours. Yeah, fascinating question. So it is true. The intervention is only nocturnal, 
And uh, studies show that if you increase minute ventilation, which is you know, how much air you take in and how many times you're doing that in a minute, carbon dioxide will go down. And when you're off the machine, off the device in the morning, studies also show that you maintain the same level of minute ventilation throughout the day. For this to happen, you need to be sleeping with the device for at least five hours. Typically, you know, up to eight, nine hours is considered beneficial. And how does this work? So we think that what happens during the night is that your carbon dioxide goes down. While you're on the machine. While you're on the machine. Mm -hmm. And your kidneys start getting rid of the alkaline, the bicarbonate that they have conserved. And this results in a new set point for the carbon dioxide, which the body adopts in the morning. So the exact mechanism is really not known, but this is what we think is happening. The other things that may be beneficial for patients is that you are providing an unloading of the respiratory muscles. So you're helping the respiratory muscles throughout the night, allowing them some rest so that they can function better in the morning. This is probably a weaker hypothesis because if you do you know, methods of testing respiratory muscle testing, uh, respiratory muscles that, that, that is objective, meaning not related to, you know, subjects, motivation, etc. There is really no improvement in respiratory muscle function. But we think that this rest may also have something to do with it. So it sounds a little bit like adjusting the thermostat in a house for a few hours every day until everybody else in the family gets used to the new temperature and they don't complain about the new temperature. You're adjusting the carbon dioxide levels during the night so that the brain and the respiratory muscles accept that new level during the day. You know, that's a lovely analogy and something I do during winters all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's successful at home for you? It's, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to see that your, your COPD program is working better than your thermostat adjustment, Umar. That's right, that's right. <laughs> You know, we've, we haven't really described very much exactly what you're doing. You're, you're using a non-invasive ventilator. That's a mask. I suppose many of the listeners are familiar with sleep apnea or the use of CPAP masks and devices like that. But tell me a little bit about exactly what's done and uh, how that's different from what we do for sleep apnea. And then maybe also a little bit about how you actually adjust this on an individual basis in the outpatient clinic. Yeah. I think um, in general, the, the setup and how the devices and the you know, adjunctive equipment looks is pretty much the same as sleep apnea. But what we do differently is that in sleep apnea, we apply pressure to the airway to keep it open. Here, we're actually providing ventilation to the patient. You're blowing air in. We're blowing air in, basically helping with each breath, increasing the volume of that breath, and then we're making sure the patient gets a certain number of breaths every minute. So this allows us to basically reduce the carbon dioxide without relying on the patient's effort. So I think that's the biggest difference between CPAP that we use during, uh, for sleep apnea and this particular modality. And we do this in the outpatient setting during a two to three hour session where we increase the airway pressure, applied pressure to the airway, 
and increase the respiratory rate while monitoring patient comfort and other vital signs. So you're putting more air in and you're putting it in faster while you watch how the patient is doing with it. That is correct. It's really important that the patient and the device are in good synchrony for this modality to succeed. So patient feedback is very important and we will get that right on the spot in the outpatient setting. And how do you know you're actually doing anything to the carbon dioxide? Yeah, that has been a problem over the years because, as you know, the traditional way of monitoring carbon dioxide is through what's called an arterial blood gas measurement. And that that could be a painful measurement. We do have very good operators in RI, our respiratory therapists, to do this as painlessly as possible. But still, you know, it is not a comfortable procedure. It's a lot of needle sticks in the wrist. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, to do this stepwise fashion, right, if you're making five, six, seven changes, would also be painful because you would have to repeat the procedure over and over again. Thankfully, the technology that helps us measure carbon dioxide has advanced to the point where we have reliable way of measuring it through the skin transcutaneous carbon dioxide monitoring. Just with a little patch? Just with a little patch that you apply on the skin. And we're finding that this is very accurate. And the response to the ventilation that we impose, so when you increase the, the size of the breath or you increase the number of the breaths, you can actually see a nice correlation between blood gases and carbon dioxide measured through the skin. So it's become a very reliable metric and a much more comfortable one at that. So this is like changing the thermostat at home and seeing how many people put sweaters on or take them off. Maybe so, yes. Okay. It's good to have measurables. (laughs) What have you seen so far with with your experience? Uh, What's it been like for the patients? Yeah, I'm not going to say that everybody will love this. I think we have about one in five patients who may not find non-invasive ventilation a modality that they can keep up with. But the majority of the patients actually really like and adapt to this intervention. And if they are adherent for at least five hours a night, they reap the benefits. Their quality of life improves. We've had people who are hospitalized less often And this is what the clinical studies show, by the way, that there's less propensity to get hospitalized. Medicare's own data show this, uh, that there's almost a 40% reduction in hospitalizations if you're using non-invasive ventilation. So overall, I think the uptake by patients is really good after you make these small adjustments for comfort. And you've had some patients who uh, this has really revolutionized some aspects of their life, as far as I understand it. Yes, yes. So uh, I, I think, you know, we've, we've really gone to phenotype patients with COPD, so the right treatment for the right patient. And if you have hypercapnic respiratory failure, and this is from COPD, and we're able to adjust the device to your comfort, you can really have life-changing impact. There are patients who have been mostly bedridden, not getting out of the house, now asking to see if they can travel by air to visit you know, family members. So it can be a life-changing experience for uh, some people. So if, if you're a person listening to this who has COPD, and to have high carbon dioxide level probably also means that it's severe COPD and 
and and you probably are short of breath while you're doing activities around the house and and you may even be on home oxygen if you're that kind of person you know how would you go about thinking about am i a candidate for this how would people know yeah i think we should cast a broad net in identifying patients for this modality so the less criteria the better because it's it will only trigger an evaluation right it it's not going to automatically qualify you for non-invasive ventilation. And I would say those two things are having severe COPD, and uh, as COPD patients who listen to this podcast know, you know, COPD is measured by FEV1 or quantified by FEV1. It's not a perfect uh, metric, but you know, this is the most accepted one. And FEV1 is forced exhaled volume in one second. And severe COPD patients typically have less than 50% FEV1. And they also would need to get a blood gas to see if their carbon dioxide is elevated. And the threshold that we accept these days is 52 millimeters mercury. And if they have carbon dioxide over 52, they should be evaluated for NIV at home. That's great. That's a very clear threshold. You know, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I know there's no clear-cut answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway, is... Much of the audience will be familiar with the idea of lung volume reduction through the various ways we do that, either with a bronchoscope or a surgery. They may be aware that there are some other medicines being developed. And then, of course, here we come talking about NIV. Mm-hmm. So how do you see NIV fitting with lung volume reduction or even some of the newer therapies that people are proposing? Yeah, I think they're both the, the result of accurate phenotyping in COPD. Lung volume reduction is for patients who have very severe hyperinflation. Now, hyperinflation, hyperinflation is air trapping. Too much air in their chest. Too much air in their chest, pushing their chest wall outward, pushing the respiratory muscle, the main respiratory muscle diaphragm downward, and reducing the mechanical advantage of respiratory muscles, making it hard to draw in a breath. Hyperinflation is not a contraindication for non-invasive ventilation. So, in other words, if you have the phenotype for lung volume reduction, hyperinflation, and you have hypercapnic respiratory failure, you are not going to be excluded from receiving NIV. Now, the opposite may be relevant. If you have hypercapnic respiratory failure and it's pretty severe, you know, we, again, we go by thresholds, but this is certainly a clinical evaluation. For valves, if you have more than 50 millimeters mercury, this was an exclusion in the pivotal trial. So you could say, if you're, you know, hard and cold about it, that you would not be a candidate. Hypercapnic respiratory failure patients who are candidates for NIV will not be a candidate for, you know, valve, uh, endobronchial valve therapy for lung volume reduction. For surgery, we're a little bit more lenient, you know, up to 60 millimeters mercury. So there's a there's a overlap of carbon dioxide thresholds there. But then, to be frank with you, all of this is the realm of an experienced COPD physician to decide. I would just say that they're not mutually exclusive, but it, it does require careful clinical consideration. Yeah, I think it's a great point. When you talk about phenotyping, you're really talking about identifying subgroups of people with COPD, 
not saying that everything is a mammal, but rather saying that there's a cat and a dog and a rhinoceros, and being able to distinguish those so that you can individualize treatment. And I think it's a good point that experience matters. I also wonder how much having a multidisciplinary approach or having a number of stakeholders at the table makes a difference. And how would patients know how to identify whether they're in a situation that can really leverage that expertise? Oh, perfect segue to what I'm really proud of, the multidisciplinary evaluation that we do on a monthly basis in the COPD center meetings. So I can't underemphasize this. You know, people think about these modalities as basically checklists. You know, you have to check a box, check a box, check a box, and the patient is a candidate or not. This is partly true. You need to go through checklists. But then there needs to be some erudite discussion around what the patient would benefit from because nobody comes in in a pure form, right? There's overlap of phenotypes. You have to decide what the predominant phenotype is. And there, I think expertise, experience of multiple people rather than one is likely to uh, give you better results for the individual patient. So we do this every month. It is actually a, a conference that focuses mostly on interventions, so endobronchial valve therapy and lung volume reduction. But we do talk about, uh, on occasion, these patients who, are, who have overlapping phenotypes, you know, candidacy for NIV, etc. Yeah, I think multidisciplinary evaluation has to be a core of uh, clinical evaluation in a center like ours, where we get really, you know, we, we never get the pure emphysema or chronic bronchitis. It's not the Netter Atlas, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> we, we say the patients didn't read the textbook. Right, exactly. Right. They never, actually, they rarely do. <laughs> they rarely do. Yes, at least uh, with the way they present and the overlaps with asthma and allergies and sleep apnea and obesity and loss of muscle. These are very important issues. And I know your group is really, you know, hyper-focused on what you said, that phenotyping and identifying what would be the best options for patients in a way that you can't just read on Google or read in in a journal. It really does require that experience and that that shared decision-making that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for you know, what you're doing and leading this and really innovating in the field and the comprehensive patient evaluation and clinical care team that you've set up and led. I think this is really a model for COPD care. And of course, it's part of the reason why Respiratory Institute and Department of Pulmonary Medicine are leaders in this space. So uh, thank you for joining us today, uh, Umar, and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Dan. We're proud of what we have, and we appreciate your support. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Respiratory Inspirations. I am Daniel Culver, your host for today. My guest today has been Dr. Umar Hadapoglu. Thank you all for joining, and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at MD. 